been looking at um, eight qualities that the Apostle Peter mentions in, um, in his second letter. So he wrote the second letter. This was, it's kind of his last words. Uh, he's, he knows Jesus told him he was about to die. He's about to leave. He's about to leave earth and he's going to be present with the Lord. And this is his last chance to put something down to his disciples. And this is what's on his heart. It's what he wrote. And he starts off in the beginning of the letter um, dealing, giving us these eight qualities, these eight virtues that if we live these virtues in our life, we will always know, uh, grow in our knowledge of Jesus. We will always be fruitful. We will always be effective. So how many think that that's probably pretty important, that this is the Apostle Peter who lived with Jesus for three years, who ministered, he'd been through all kinds of uh, um, uh, Decades of living out this Christian faith on the earth. He's seen everything. He's seen miracles. He's seen uh, persecution. He was been, been put in jail. He's been beaten. And he says, these are the things I want to leave with you. I want you to remember. I mean, so that's probably pretty important. And the second thing he's dealing with, and we're going to see this this morning that he dealt with in the letter, is he says, you have to watch out for, for the corruption inside the church. Inside the church. And this particular virtue we're going to look at this morning is one of the virtues, one of the qualities that, that he specifically speaks to about dealing with that. All right. So this is the scripture. This is what he says. He says, um, for this very reason, make every effort, effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You can, you can go to the next uh, slide there. Um, uh, faith with virtue. Uh, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And it's been pointed out um, by many times by scholars that those six qualities in the middle were very common in Greek culture, very common among Greek philosophers and, and moralists, but they would have never put faith and love in that list. And, Jesus, and Peter is repurposing these list of qualities for us believers, saying it starts in faith and everything builds to there until we are living the love of that holy God we sang about. If we desire to know, to experience, to live the love of that holy God we just sang about, these are the things we build in our lives, one on the other. And so uh, we talked about faith. What was faith? Um... Peter begins his list with faith as the fountain from which flows these, from which these virtues flowing. For every grace of Christian character springs out of faith, just as it will be expressed ultimately in love. Hang on one second. Okay, so um, I'll tell you what I'm doing here. The words are too small on my page. I have to blow them up. Anyway, <clears throat> there we go. Um. For every grace of Christian character springs out of faith, just as it will be expressed ultimately in love. For, for Peter, faith is the personal certainty that God, all God says and does is true, and that the way to all meaning and power in life is to take him at his word. Did you catch that? For Peter, this fisherman, this guy who worked hard for a living, who lived with Jesus for three years, whose life was transformed by the Holy Spirit, he says this, in a personal certainty that everything God said in his word is true, and everything we need to have meaning and power in life, we take him at his word. And it starts there. 
And he says, once, you, once you've come to that place and understand that place, you need to add virtue to that. What is virtue? Virtue is a, is a word that means energetic moral excellence. It's not simply the absence of a bad habit. It's a life full of, thing, full of things one does not do, uh, but not simply a life full of things one does not do, but a positive, vigorous pursuit of what is morally right, helpful in all relationships. It's moral excellence. The idea, the idea comes from like taking a seed and putting a seed in the ground and, and out comes the, the, the fruit tree and there's all this fruit on it. Living your life. When we know Jesus, take him at his word, it's like putting the seed of that in our heart and out comes this fruit. And he says, what we need to do is we need to add to that knowledge. What is knowledge? Knowledge, in the way that Peter's using it here, it means to understand what is right or wrong. To figure out how do we discern what's God's will in our life on a daily basis, practically living it out. I love this analogy. An athlete knows the rules of the sport, but effective play requires knowing how to handle and move in the ball. See, it's one thing if I know how to play the game, like wiffle ball, I can tell you the rules. It's a whole other thing to be able to actually hit the thing. Right? Knowing the rules is not the same thing as hitting home runs, is it? I can tell you if you hit the ball up there in the balcony, that's a home run. Right? But to actually do it, it takes, it takes the, the working, it takes me knowing the, the motions. And that's what knowledge means here. As a believer, we need to know what it means to be a believer. We need to gain that knowledge of Jesus. And he says, so, so how do we build on that? And that, that is built on, um, so I'm going to, two scriptures there, Hebrews 5.14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Proverbs, if you seek it like silver, search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. There's this concept of seeking and finding, seeking and finding, struggling with the Lord. And so he says, now you need to add to that knowledge, you need to add self-control. So I'll be honest with you, of all of the virtues, this is the one I wanted to talk about the least. It's probably the one you want to hear about the least. Right? Because, because if we're honest, every one of us will look in the mirror and we can think of at least one area, and I'm being very generous, at least one area in which we do not have self-control. Right? We can, we can look at, you know, you know, and we can look at other people and go, wow, look at you know, how much control they have. But us, we're like, oh my goodness. Self-control, we think it's a drudgery. And we're going to, uh, we'll be talking about that. So what, what we're going to do this morning is what we're going to look at it is what was the context in which Peter was writing When he thought self-control, what was he thinking? How did the world see self-control in that time? So the ancient, ancient authors, the ancient Greeks, they saw self-control. Some of them saw it as the foundation for all virtues, self-control. Others said it was second. You know, so others said, oh, no, you have the four virtues, um, uh, justice, prudence, uh, um, uh, wisdom, and temperance, I think they are. And then self-control comes right behind that. Um, but, but popularly defined, what would self-control have been in that day? It would have been this. It would have been this disposition that we have that's based on right reason, right thinking, and right habits in which pleasure, bad reasoning, and bad habits can never overcome. 
I got, I, I, I can, I, because I think rightly, because I do rightly, those things which are wrong, those things which are bad, will never overcome that which is right. That's, that's the way they thought about and understood this in culture. Now, this only, this wasn't only something that the Greeks thought about. The ancient Hebrew uh, writers in Peter's day, the, the, the second temple writers from Peter's day, they wrote a lot about self-control. Here's a, um, here's a quote from, um, uh, from the pseudepigrapher, some of the writings of the, the ancient uh, Hebrew thinkers. It says this, The virtuous disposition, on the other hand, restrains those who are attracted to the rule of play. You like how the way they write? And it's like, what is he saying? <clears throat> Clue in here, because this is really cool to get their thinking. The virtuous disposition, the person who has self-control, restrains those who are attracted to the rule of pleasure and commands them to respect self-control and justice more highly. God directs all these matters. Did you catch what he says, what they said here? They said, listen, if you live with self-control, you are actually influencing people around you. If you live with self-control, not only is that restraining you, it's actually restraining the culture around you. And can I tell you, the University of Georgia, I'm going to say it was 2010, I'll provide it later. University of Georgia in 2010 actually did a study on this. They did a study and they discovered just that. When people live self-controlled, it raises the self-control around them. And vice versa. When you don't live it, it gives people license to not live it around you. You make a difference. You do. And so um, there, was a, there was an ancient Jewish philosopher at the same time as a, this, um, Peter, contemporary in that, in that time frame. He wrote this. His name is Philo. He wrote this. He says that self-control is the antithesis to desire, to pleasure, and to money. To, to Philo, he describes self-control is this, it's a virtue into which the converts who experience repentance transfer when they leave a life of vice. What he's saying is, listen, he says, when, if, if somebody comes to God, by, by the fact that you came to God means your life will be different. Your life will be different. And so the reason I'm pointing this out is this isn't just something that Peter put in a letter to some guys saying this would be a nice idea. This was literally something all of culture knew, understand, and practice. This was something that was in their belief system. Um, here's a quote from Philo. I like this. Therefore, such a man, sorry about someone who's a convert, emigrates from ignorance to instruction, from folly to wisdom, from cowardice to courage, from impiety to piety. From devotion to pleasure to temperance. From vaingloriousness. We should, we should bring that word back. That's a fantastic word. Vaingloriousness. Being in love with yourself. Being in love with what everybody says about you and wanting that. That's a, that's a wonderful word. We need to bring that word back. From vaingloriousness to simplicity. From qualities these are qualities that are superior to riches. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth can touch them. You hearing Jesus' voice in this? All more valuable as a possession than any royal or imperial power. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and loses his soul. You hear Jesus' voice? So Luke actually makes this issue of self-control a key part of Paul's teaching. Um, here's Paul. Uh, he's, Luke is writing about Paul. This is in the book of Acts. There's a fascinating story behind this. He says this, And as he reasoned and write about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So what's the backstory here? Paul, about, about 25, 30 years before this, um, met the Lord Jesus and, and he's been growing and growing. And for, 25, for about 25, 30 years, he made three missionary journeys around the world. And he ended up at the end of his last missionary journey in Jerusalem. And he gets arrested and put in jail in Jerusalem. And the procurator, the Roman procurator over Jerusalem at the time was this guy named Felix. This guy was horrible. Now, he was, um, he was a slave who had become a free man. He was a Roman slave who had become a free man. And he, he, he was a brutal dictator who was very licentious, and um, he cared, didn't care about justice at all. And he was assigned to, to rule basically where, you know, the area that Pontius Pilate had ruled, that area by the Romans. All right, so um, Paul's in jail, and Felix calls him, and Paul tells him the gospel. Paul's preaching the gospel, and to Paul, the essence of the gospel was righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. How many of us preach the gospel that way? We preach the gospel, it's about going to heaven. Paul's preaching the gospel, it's about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. What are we saved from? The coming judgment. If we are saved, how does it look? It looks like righteousness and self-control. And so Felix is like, he's like alarmed. He's like, I don't want to hear this. Now, why would Felix not want to hear this? There is a whole backstory, and the original author, uh, the original author, Luke, and the people listening knew the backstory. I mean, it's better than a soap opera. So here's Felix. He, uh, he, is, he he's new on, on his, uh, as his rulership, and he invites this, this minor king from a, a recent, from a new a land over, but I gotta go back a little bit further than that. So anybody heard of Herod the Great? Evil, evil guy, okay? Herod the Great, there's a whole bunch of Herods in the Bible. Herod the Great had a son that was a Herod. He had a son that was Herod Agrippa the first. He had another son, Herod Agrippa the second. So we're, by the time we're here, we're at the fourth Herod in a row here. And this Herod Agrippa, he grew up in Rome. And Claudius, the emperor, appoints Herod Agrippa II as king up in the uh, Syria area. He gets this big area that he's going to be king. Now, Herod Agrippa II has four, uh, three sisters. Three sisters. And so when he, he leaves Rome, he comes to his kingdom, and now he's got to deal with his sisters. Well, one sister, she lives with him. Anybody heard the story in Acts where, where Agrippa uh, and Bernice show up? Well, Bernice isn't his wife. That's actually his sister. She was rightly a queen, but her husband had died, so she maintained her queenship, but she was no longer in the land. So you got Bernice one, so he's not really worried about her. She has her title and all this. The, the, the youngest one is one named Drusilla. The middle, the middle one, he's easy to marry. She was uh, betrothed from birth. He marries her off, and she's gone. Well, this youngest one, her name is Drusilla, and she's just completely beautiful. And Beatrice is as jealous as she can get. And so Beatrice talks her brother into marrying her off to this king who agrees to convert to Judaism in order to get this wife. 
So he converts to Judaism, and gets his wife. These two couples come over to Jerusalem. Felix sees this girl and says, I want that girl for my wife. That's who I want for my wife. He hires a magician, which, which by the way, is, po- is quite possibly the same magician, because it's a magician from Cyprus, it's probably the same one Paul ran into when he's preaching the gospel there. There's some evidence it might be the same magician. So he hires this magician, this, this sorcerer, to go put a spell on her. This, I mean, this is all in history. You can look this up. This is all in history. Go put a spell on her, and somehow it works. Whether it was the spell at work or whether she saw an opportunity to get out, who knows. But she gets out, she leaves, and she shocks the world by marrying this horrible, evil, pagan Roman ruler, Felix and Drusilla. And so Paul is sitting here preaching the gospel, saying, what y'all did is going to bring judgment. That's the context for righteousness and self-control. That's why Felix doesn't want to hear it. That's why he's panicked. He knows exactly what he's done. Makes us think a little bit different about the passage, doesn't it? He wasn't afraid to deal with the cultural issues of the day. He wasn't afraid to speak truth to the person who has him in prison and can set him free. This guy has him in prison and can set him free. Felix is wanting him to make an argument, want him to appeal to him, want him some money or something to set him free. And Paul's more concerned that he hears the gospel. I'm pointing at the screen. He's more concerned that he hears the gospel. He's more concerned that Felix understands the way he's living and what he's doing in his life is going to bring him condemnation than he is worried about his own freedom in prison. Let's put the context where it is. Do you think self-control might be important? So, Paul writes this. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but but we an imperishable. And, and, and this is going to be one of the keys uh, to understanding self-control. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on it in a minute. But what's Paul saying here? That, that the same way that, that the athlete becomes focused on, on his goal, that's what leads him to be able to accomplish his purpose. Um, but the point is, is that Paul's writing about it. Titus 1.8. He's talking about elders here. But elders are to be hospitable. They're to be lovers of good. They're to be self-controlled. They're to be upright. They're to be holy. They're to be disciplined. Peter, in his letter here, links uh, uh, self-control with faithfulness. And we'll talk more about that on another time. But the whole point is to see is that that self-control, part of it comes by what? Being faithful. Being faithful. Not about getting it perfect, but not quitting. Not quitting. Continuing When you fail, step up and do it again. Step up and do it again. Step up and do it again. That's the, the need for endurance, for faithfulness, for perseverance. And he links those together. So, since this, this, this self-control is an antidote, it's, it's the opposite of pleasure. It's the opposite of desire. In fact, they actually call it the antidote for pleasure and desire in our lives. We're going to look at Second Peter here for a minute. And we're going to see how he... Uh, puts self-control as opposed to what's going on in the church, what's happening in the body. So the first thing he mentions is that 
is that we are called to escape this world of corruption. This is in 2 Peter 1.4. By which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of this divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Sinful desire... We escape that. How are we escaping that? We're escaping that by his divine promises. Remember, it starts in faith. It starts with the work he does in us. And we allow that work to work in us. And it begins to demonstrate the divine nature of God. Number two, escape the judgment from from the polluting desires of the flesh. Um, So the second half of Peter's letters... There are these false teachers and false prophets in the body who were telling the believers, look, God's a gracious God. Live how you want. Jesus isn't coming. He hasn't come back by now. He's not coming back. It's not going to happen. It's all spiritual. Just be a good person, but live how you want. Live how you feel. How do you feel? Live, that's how you should live. Nobody should step on how you feel. That should come out. There are teachers in the body who were teaching us, literally corrupting the body. And so he says this. This is 2 Peter 2 8. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In other words, they're literally leading people in the church down this path to live for sensual passions. He talks about escaping um, uh, the scoffers. Uh, And this goes all the way back to the beginning. Anybody ever heard a little phrase called, has God said? Where's the first time somebody said, has God said? Something called a garden. Has God said? said the tempter to Eve. Well, this is exactly what's going on in the church at the time. Um, here it is. Knowing, first of all, this is Second Peter 3, 3. Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. How many have heard that today? You know, it's like they laugh when you say you're going to live with self-control. They laugh when you say... We're not, it is not good that we should live just however we want, pleasing ourselves, pleasing our flesh. <clears throat> Have you ever heard that? I hear it literally all the time. Well, guys, that's nothing new. That's from the beginning. That's exactly what happened in the garden. Has God said, you shall touch this? And what's the first thing that goes to Eve's mind? Well, it looked good to eat, lust of the flesh. It's going to make me wise. Pride. It looked good to have greed. The very first things that go through my pride, greed, selfishness, vaingloriousness, desire, fleshly desire, all those things simply come because of scoffing at the word of God. Did God say? God's not real. He didn't say that. Why are you living that way? There's a famous atheist. There's a famous atheist that actually said, if people won't listen to you, then just mock them. Just mock them. All right. So here's my point. My point to that is this is nothing new. This has been going on from the very beginning. So when it happens to us, don't think that's something brand new. We should not be shaken in our faith because somebody's stopping. That's exactly what's been happening from the very beginning. All right, let's go to the next one. So the answer to that, the answer that, the antidote to that is self-control. And we'll talk about it in a minute. Last one is this, escaping those who count uh, lack of self-control as pleasure. 
Peter uh, writes it this way, 2 Peter 2.13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast among you. So, um, in, in Peter, the way he's using this, he makes this example that their eyes, and I'm not going to do all the scriptures, I'm just going to hit the points. Their eyes are filled with adulteries and evils. In other words, they're looking, what they're seeing, and what they're allowing in through their mind. Their mouth are filled with insults, blasphemies, and things they don't comprehend. They're speaking about all kinds of things, things they don't know about. They're speaking evil speech. They're mocking, they're scoffing, they're tearing other people down. Their mouths are also used for eating, dissipation at the feast. Here they are in the body. This is all in the body, by the way. Peter's talking about what's going on in church. This is in church. So they're, they're, they're living how they want, satisfying all of their, their bodily desires as though it makes no difference at all. And then finally, sexual immorality. No, not finally. There's two more. Sexual immorality and adultery and uh, greed, love of money, possessions, and material things. And Peter is dealing with each one of these issues that's going on in the body. And his answer, part of his answer here is self-control. So how does Peter use self-control? What is he doing? This is genius. What he's doing is he's taking that which was understood in the culture as a premier um, virtue, and he says, we as believers from Jesus need to apply that virtue, but not the way they do, the way that it allows God to carry out his desire in our life. This is what he's doing. That is what will make us pure and stainless. That is what will be the antidote to desire and pleasure. That which is what will deliver us from what's profane, what's impure, and what's unholy. Um, and why? Why is he encouraging this? Because he wants us to be able to stand before God pure and holy, clean conscience, a sincere faith, as Paul writes. That's his desire for us. Um, and then the second part about that is this, is he wants us to understand what it really means to be free. You see, the world says that to be free is to be able to live however you want, to do what you want, to throw off all constraint. But freedom in the kingdom is when we actually learn how to not be driven by our desires, but be driven by the Spirit. And so that brings us to... Putting this all together. Let's put this all together. How do we live this? Is there any hope? Or is somebody saying, you know, are we saying amen or oh me? Because I tell you, you know, as I go through this for the first time and I'm listening to all this and I'm listening to the standard and I'm listening to where it is, there's a lot more oh me than amen. But there's hope. And here's the hope. Now we know this in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I, you know, Paul's list, the way he comes up, it's like, most of them I'm okay with, but why do we have to put that one in there? You know, why there's that one in there? You know, what do you mean causing division is just like dot, dot, dot? What do you mean envy is, you know, wanting what somebody else has is just like dot, dot, dot? Fits of anger is just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's, let's take those out of the list. 
So that's the list. We know the works of the flesh. How do we get free? And this is what he says. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. Fine. I've read that before. I go, okay, so what does it mean then to walk by the Spirit? Is that some mystical thing in which I've got to figure out how to get more spirit in my life so that I can overcome my flesh? Well, let's look at what he says down in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the first thing we understand is that these things are given to us. You've already been given it. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's not something you conjure up. It's not something you swallow to get into. It's a gift given by the grace of God. How do we walk in this? By grace. Check out Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Did you catch what the grace of God does? It trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to renounce worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled. It trains us to be upright. It trains us to live godly lives in the present age. Most of us have this mindset that grace is somehow this big pool of grace stuff God has over here. That every time I fail or fall, I can come over here to tap into this pool to wash me and cleanse me. We don't think that grace is an actual active presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives every day, no matter what we're working through, training us, building us up, lifting us up, encouraging us, empowering us. Everything that we have, everything that we do is a gift from the Holy Spirit already given us by the grace of God so that we can live this. Number one, we need to know where it comes from. It's not about our strength, it's about His strength working in us. I toil, struggling with all His energy. He works within me. Uh, Paul writes to the Colossians. All right, number two is judgment free. Guys, I can't make enough emphasis on this one. The way we do it is judgment-free. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What that means is when I fall, when I find myself not living up to the self-control that, that I'm supposed to exhibit, the first thing I want to do is beat myself up. Look at how horrible I am. Look at how value I don't have. Look at how guilty I am. Look at how much shame I'm living through. And that will do you no good whatsoever. If there is no condemnation, then guess what? There is no condemnation. I remember one time I was, uh, in, I was in that place, beating myself up and struggling and, and, and dealing with my own uh, uh, issues. And I remember, remember thinking and talking to God, and the Lord was asking me about uh, different individuals in my life and, and, and the struggles that they were having. And I just, my heart was just filled with grace. I literally had zero judgment. And my heart was just, Praying and pouring out grace on these people, desiring to see them be lifted up by his grace and strengthened. And the Lord spoke to me and says, do you have more grace than I do? Then why are you beating yourself up? I was like, no, sir. No, no, I don't have more grace than you. No, no, sir. Judgment free. And number three is practice. I'm going to end here. 
Hebrews 5.14, but solid food belongs to the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good for evil. 1 Corinthians 1.9, every athlete exercises control in all things. Listen, it's very simple. These practices that are in our lives that we want out of our lives are there because we practice them. We do them over and over and over. You get on your phone, you're good at getting on your phone. You practice it. You practice it when you wake up. You practice it when you're eating. You practice it while you're at work. You practice it while you're driving, but you don't tell anybody. You practice it all the time. You're good at it. You're an expert to it. You know how to get to what you want to get to, where you want to get to it. You're really good. Could you do that the first time you picked up your phone? You practice it. The things that that we do in our lives... They're in our lives because we practice them. We do them. The spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith are no different. The Holy Spirit is there to empower us. He's ready to work in us. All he wants us to do is to begin to practice them. Now, we're going to talk more about this in, in, in other lessons and other times, but I'm just going to introduce it to you here. I want you to think of yourself like an athlete. Does a professional athlete come out of the womb and jump at first base? No. The first thing is that they learn how to put a glove on. No, the other hand. Then they learn how to pick up the ball and throw it. No, you gotta pick it up first. And then they learn a little bit about the rules. And then they do it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times for years and years and years. And then before you know it, you're watching a, 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 one of your favorite sports and you see somebody do a maneuver. You go, that's pure artwork. They're so genius. It didn't happen yesterday. That's self-control in our lives. The way we walk this out is the same way we begin to practice spiritual disciplines. And we begin to do it judgment-free when we fail. And we do it because the grace of God is already in our lives. Amen? That's how we live. But that holiness has been entrusted in us. He's already made us righteous. He just wants us to start to live it out. 